Yeah, I'm sorry it. about this. Yes, please do cut this out. <laughs> All right. Um, hello and welcome to Shoot the Piano Player, a French New Wave podcast. I'm Spencer. Joel is not here. He's uh, busy with his job so he can pay the bills like a born adult. But I have returning guest, friend of the show, uh, Chris Funderberg. Hi. Hi, Spencer. How you doing? Thanks for having me on again. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Um, Am I still good. the the only guest that has ever been to your house in Delaware? The, Have you had yes. any other any other guests record live in in the the Spencer Dome? Uh, you are still the only one, and there might well I might bring on my friend from the other show, Joel and I do, that was on the Benchworms episode. Okay. Uh, as a forgiveness, because I made him watch the Benchwarmers, and I still feel bad about it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I made a friend watch the bench warmers once, and he was furious about it. <laughs> he was he was furious. Uh, yeah, so I'm no I, I, I might be the only person in the world who can sympathize with you on that of having made <laughs> someone watch the bench warmers. Yeah. And I knew and I knew he would hate it. It's not like I, I uh, it's not like I think the bench warmers is good. Sorry, but go on. Yeah. Well, well this, this is someone I've been friends with for over half my life. Kind of. Uh, well. 16 years which isn't that uh, isn't that much because i think you've, you've known john since uh not that long after i was born actually yeah first f- one week before college started we had like a uh uh film department get together with the 20 film students from my school and i met john cribs then so 1997 and late august 97 is how long i've known john johnny crabs <laughs> yeah. All right. So, um, uh, all right. So this is the first been well we're ever going to do, f- uh, we've ever done for this for this our for the show, and it won't be a last because next season there's a Spanish connection, so I'm saving a couple more for uh, that season. Uh, Interesting. He didn't make that many movies in Spain. Yeah. Well. The topic is Spanish, so and he's Spanish, so it's enough of a reason. Yeah, I think that's a very reasonable connection. Yeah. And uh, so this is Belle de Jour. Uh, this is a movie that I've this is only seen twice. It of the Pinwells, probably my my least favorite one. Yeah, which it's not bad. I just want to clarify that now. It's not bad. It's just it's his most regular movie. But almost by a mile. I mean, I think you compare it to the Mexican films, mm. where he's sort of making more standard, uh, not studio projects, but like mainstream entertainments. When he was working in um, in 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 Mexico, more or less. And I think this resembles those movies more than his generally uh, more adventurous French films. Uh, and and uh, you know. A uh, few films that he made, sort of in the transition from Mexico back to Spain and France, like *Exterminating Angel* and *Simon of the Desert*. Those are those are technically his Mexican films as well. But um, you know, and but even that, this is even as I'm saying that I'm thinking about you know *Illusion Travels by Streetcar* or <laughs> *A Mexican Bus Ride*, and this is a more regular movie than those movies. Even this is this to me. A lot of people recommend it if you haven't seen any other Boonwell to start with Belle de Jour. I know a lot of critics call it his best movie. Um, 
And I think the reasons for both of those things are that it's a lot more regular than his other films. I think if you're not a Boonwell fan and you just have to pick the best one, this is sort of the most obvious pick in a lot of ways. Mm. Uh, and I don't think it's a great entry point. I think if you want to recommend a Boonwell movie to someone and you say, watch Belle de Jour, and it won't matter whether they like it or dislike it, to see the next one, you know, to see Criminal Life of Archibaldo de la Cruz. It doesn't matter whether you've liked Belle de Jour or not or how you responded to it. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, sort of like, I never really heard of Boonwell until maybe, honestly, like 2018 or 19. It was really? Like, yeah. Because I, I knew of uh, Unshun Andalu. Because mm-hmm. you're a big Pixies uh, fan. <laughs> yeah. No, because I think, honestly, I think it was like a cracked article I like, read right when I was 19 or 20. It's like the, the craziest movies ever made. And it was on there. And it's probably like, and I was thinking, like, oh, I didn't know silent movies were weird. Because <laughs> I was 19. I, yeah. I, I've never taken a film class in my life. So. Yeah. And now you know silent movies are weirder <laughs> than sound movies. Now you know that, that the yeah. silent era is far stranger in the sound era yeah I, I have no formal film education my, my film school was Netflix DVD pretty much <laughs> yeah but uh, and then I think uh, I heard you and Chris talk like mentioned being well in something maybe it was uh, the okay you might hear noises in the background uh, in my apartment building the some of the the teens smoke weed in the basement so you might hear noises yeah, but um, I yeah, disapprove. So I like neither teens nor weed nor basements. <laughs> no part of that do I like. It's annoying, and Freya hates it. You might hear her uh, complain about them at yeah. some point. But uh, yeah, so you or Cribs mentioned Boonwell. Maybe it was a Flixwise episode came out around then, possibly, and that yeah. made me go like. Maybe I should check out this Boomwell guy because, like, people I trust uh, taste-wise seem to like him. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did one on his his tetralogy of his most overtly religious films: uh, Viridiana, Simon of the Desert, Milky Way, and uh, and Nazarene. So that yeah, that would have been right around then when we when we did that episode. I think I have no sense of time anymore. Yeah, and I think <coughs> Simon Desert was the first one I actually saw, and I fell in love with it, and yeah. it made me watch all of... I only have only seen the late era stuff. Yeah. Uh, the, the Mexican ones I try to track down, and it's kind of real spotty. I think YouTube has some, but it's just kind of spotty to find the Mexican ones, in my yeah. experience. Yeah, absolutely. I And I'm not sure they're why they're so neglected, except that they... Uh, are just not there's nobody ever got a hold of them no central distributor to sort of steward them around so i tried to put together a mexican boonwell series once when i was programming uh, a repertory theater and it was it was very very hard to find out who had the rights to any given film where materials were there's just nobody taking care of them it's sort of shocking 
that uh, director like Boonwell doesn't have somebody, you know, that there's nothing like the Fassbender Foundation for him, that there's nobody mm. stewarding his work around. And I think that's just that the the state of where Mexico was as a country and and uh, being on the, the third worldish side in that time and just there was nobody, the, the infrastructure to take care of the arts wasn't there the way it is even in the United States. Uh, and so I think that that that's what happens when there's nobody taking care of the films as they fall into neglect and they they scatter around. I know that there's a lot of this is one of the, the big debates that that happens in the film world right now is you have uh, a lot of big studios consolidating um, buying up libraries like Disney buying up Fox and everything under the sun and Warner Brothers on the other side buying up everything. And there's a lot of complaints about, oh, no, now they control these entire catalogs. And if they sit on films and don't make them available, then it makes them hard to see. And I understand why that's bad. There's definitely drawbacks and downsides to that. But the alternative is what happened to Boonwell's Mexican movies, <laughs> which is just try and find a copy of Illusion Travels by Streetcar or, you know, uh, of The River and Death or whatever. Um, yeah, you can apply it to African films. There's a whole bunch from the 70s and 80s where it's like, well, good luck trying to find it. Yeah, exactly. Is that there is something that when I was a programmer that was very comforting about when you would try and get a movie and Warner Brothers owned it. And at the time they had control of the MGM catalog and stuff like that. I don't know if they still do MGM catalog up till 83, I think. <clears throat> but um, it was just, it was easy. They had their works listed very clearly. They knew what prints they had. They had all of their prints graded and knew what sort of condition they were in. Uh, they were a breeze to work with. Although... <laughs> The, the person who ran the Warner uh, uh, repertory archive at the time, a lot of people had problems with her. I always thought she was great. I always had a really good relationship with her. Um, but I guess that's that's the flip side to it is that that stuff is all there. And if the gatekeepers close the gate, there's that entire mass of cinema closed off. Um, but then you'd go out for the... Or, you know, all of the... Um, French Boonwells were uh, controlled by Rialto films at the time. I believe all of them. I might be getting some of this wrong. It's been 10 years since I worked as a programmer. And so it was real easy to get the French Boonwells because Rialto had all of them and they were very well taken care of. And uh, they, you know, that's obviously, you know, the, the gold standard of repertory cinema is Rialto and, and the work they do uh, in terms of just taking care of prints and finding things and putting catalogs together. They're, you know, they're the, they're, uh, they're somebody that Criterion draws from, you know, a lot of the work that the Criterion collection uh, puts out on their DVDs is done in collaboration with Rialto, if not just straight derived from work that Rialto's done. So, um, and I'm not sure what the nature of that uh transaction relationship is i don't know how they work together i don't know what the process is at all other than that they have some relationships um but so it was really easy to get the french boon wells and then you would try and get anything else even to try and get tristana which was uh you know mm. made in spain it was really fucking hard to find <laughs> a print you know and that the one that the spanish government tried to uh take no that's viridiana what happened with viridiana was is he went back 
to Spain after having lived in Mexico and made a film in Spain. And it got by Franco's censors. In Boonwell's words, he said, you know, with all that Franco was seen, I imagine that the movie was quite tame to him. You know, was quite, you know, all the shocking stuff that Franco did. He sure he saw the movie and was like, whatever. And uh, that's a direct quote. I'm sure Franco saw it and was like, whatever, <laughs> whatevs. And but then it won. Uh, I think it won an award at the Venice Film Festival. Uh it won the top award at some festival. I can't believe I don't know off the top of my head. And the Pope, because there's that travesty of the Last Supper in it where the woman takes, they do the Last Supper image in it, and then the woman takes a quote-unquote photo of it with her vagina. Um, the Pope called Franco and was like, you got to ban this shit. Like, how did you let this happen? You know, like, and uh, Franco was like, I'm on it. We'll destroy it. And so uh, the producer actually had to take it and bury it on his farm um, and, and get rid of it and hide it. The, the remaining, last remaining print, Gustavo Alatriste, uh, had, had all the prints were destroyed except for one that he hid on his farm by burying it to keep it away from the censors. And then it was um, petitioned to be made uh, an official Mexican film somehow. Um, they, they somehow changed the nationality of it so that it could go out into the world and show at film festivals and what not. Um, and it was, uh, maybe it was Khan that it won an award at. that. Um, yeah, it won the Palm Door. It won the fucking Palm Door. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. I don't know why I wasn't thinking about talking about Verdiana, so I didn't have this all, uh, stuck, uh, you know, it straightened out in my head. So I'm sort of going through it and they've, you know, had the nationality of it changed and, and got it switched to being a Mexican film and it went out into the world in that way. But Viridiana is great. Viridiana is my favorite, or if it's not my favorite, it's the one I've, I've watched the most out of any of them. And that's also, it's also interesting because it is uh, a movie that was made with, the, with Gustavo Triste and his wife, Sylvia Pinnell, who's a very famous uh, Mexican actress, probably like the most famous Mexican actress of all time, um, or certainly of that era. She's just a giant star. And it was made with them, and they made it in Spain together. So it is easy to see its sort of like dual nationality of it in some way. Mm -hmm. He's a, I always say, you know, when you said Boonwell's Spanish and I immediately mm -hmm. said, well, he made very few films in Spain. Um, the, he's a filmmaker. I always think of as being a filmmaker without a country that he moved it. You know, his most famous movies uh, were probably the French movies that he made Un Chien Andalou, which he made in Paris when he was uh, a surrealist in the 20s or or the late period films like Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie that he won an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film with. Those are probably his most famous movies, but the bulk of his movies he made in Mexico uh, on, on top of that. And then he made a few films in Spain and he made one film in uh, mm. English in America. And uh, he was he was all over the place. It's sort of hard. And he lived in New York City for a while and worked at MoMA. And he, he was just somebody who was all over the place as far as uh, his nationality. And I think that sort of limiting him as a Spanish filmmaker and as a surrealist, he gets called a surrealist a lot too. And I think he only made 
one, possibly two movies that could be considered authentically surrealist works in any way, which are in Shenandoah and Las Huertas. Uh, I bet Andre Breton would disagree with me that Las Huertas is a, is a surrealist <laughs> film, but that's uh, that's certainly um, one of the one of the few ones that you could uh, label as a surrealist film. And so the surrealist label, then he goes on to make weird movies, but something like that obscure object of desire or even Phantom of Liberty, these are not surrealist films in the sense of, you know, that the surrealists were a group of people with membership and you could be kicked out of it. And they had very serious, uh, ideas about what it meant for an artwork to be an authentically surrealist artwork. It wasn't, uh, it's a little bit like the, um, the Dogma 95 movies where, mm. you know, those have certificates. You can't just make a Dogma-esque movie. You were, it was a group with rules that you had to be a part of uh, and to be issued the, the Dogma certificate. And um, this is the same thing with, uh, with, with surrealism. So he's, he's a director that I think um, because of the neglect of such a huge amount of his work and because of the misunderstanding about his nationality and his uh, relationship to surrealism and the sort of diffuseness of his work and the descriptions of him. I think he's a filmmaker that's that's pretty consistently misunderstood is what I would say about Boonwell is that he's somebody that I feel like is is pretty consistently misunderstood even by serious cinephiles and people are familiar with his his works i guess lodge door is also mm-hmm. surrealist i guess that's also a, a an authentically surrealist movie um it, i guess you know i guess that's so he has two <laughs> lodge door lodge door definitely counts i don't know why i'm why i'm fighting with that one um and yeah yeah but that's just the the overview of his career i didn't mean to to launch into that i'm just sort of getting my own thoughts straight as i'm talking to you as i'm going oh, through it uh, like compared to the ones i've seen uh i've seen uh simon on desert to yeah uh, that's the best Final entry film. point yeah sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but when we were talking about best first boonwell simon of the desert i think is the best first one to watch it's short and it's very funny and it's extremely weird in a Boonwellian way and sort of has all of his obsessions put out. Sorry, not to interrupt you. Uh, I don't know what to really say about uh, Belle de Jour outside of... I didn't realize... Well, first off, um, the the young guy, Marcel, who shows up in the second half, yeah. the whole time I was watching this, the first time through, uh, I was like, that, that's a weird-looking guy, whatever. This time I was like, "Oh, Grandma's boy! He looks like the game designer from Grandma's Boy." <laughs> well, it's funny. That's Pierre Clemente, who's in a who's in a couple Boonwell films, and uh, he's most famous. His most famous stuff is he's probably known for being in The Leopard and Pigsty, the Pasolini film. Yeah, um, we just did an the, episode uh, for. Uh, well, as of this recording, it well, it will be out by uh, whatever. Um, we just recorded a past Lean 100 episode and covered Pigsty. And I didn't realize that was the same guy from Belle Jour until just now. Yeah. He's, it's funny because with this movie, I always think of how the two guys, Severine, who's uh, Catherine Deneuve's character, who's the main character of this movie. It's about a rich lady who's married to a surgeon who has a fantasy life that uh, is 
sort of deeply repressed from her marital life. So during the day, she goes and works as a uh, high class prostitute, right? That's the thumbnail description of Belle yeah. du Jour. And she's caught between one of her Johns, who's Pierre Clementi, who's a thug criminal type. He's got brass teeth because his teeth have been knocked out and her surgeon husband. And it's the two type of hot guys. It's like the surgeon <laughs> husband who's like great, you know, like brute ad, you know, uh, like classy cable knit sweaters at a ski lodge, <laughs> kind of hot. And then Pierre Clemente, who's like the greasy headed bohemian James Franco sleazy art guy kind of hot. <laughs> and it's yeah. those are the two those are the two kinds of hot. There's no other kind of hot guy that exists. No, um, but it is funny that she's she's caught between the two of them. Pierre Clemente, it is funny. I think of him. He's he's very 1967 version of sexy too. Also, he's also in a great um, Philippe Garel movie called uh, The Cicatrice Interior, The Inner Scar, that stars uh, Nico from The Velvet Underground, and he's he's like the male lead in that movie and. I feel like that's the perfect setting for him is like wandering these giant empty like desert and ice flow landscapes with Nico on horseback, you know, <laughs> like there's in these very long shots of this super arty artsy movie uh, that he's he's sort of perfect as the guy you put opposite Nico and things. But yeah, he's definitely his grossness is part of it, too. Like the way Boonwell lingers on the shot of his sock with the hole in the bottom of it, you know, when he pops his boots off to to make yeah. love to Severine. Yeah, in that shot, uh, I first thought of um, uh, uh, Possession because like the man with the pink socks, it's like, oh. There could be a connection between him and the man with the him, like him and uh, uh, Sam Neill in that movie. Whatever Sam yeah. Neill's job is, uh, I'm still not sure what, what his job is, but something to do with <laughs> pink and purple socks. Very true. And Pierre Clemente has some fantastic purple socks in this movie too. Watching it this time, I was like, those are some dynamite purple socks. And he is he is stylish in a in a gross low class way. <laughs> Uh, yeah. there is something, I don't know. I, th I think there's something overtly appealing about him. I think he's, he's sort of perfect casting to me. That entire subplot though, is what keeps this movie from being a top tier Boonwell is just like Boonwell. <laughs> Boonwell's not interested in criminals, right? He very rarely has like street criminals like this movie has a heist in it where that character where Pierre Clemente's character and his um his his cohort his collaborator uh rob a mailman a package delivery man uh to get a parcel that has a bunch of money in it and they beat him up in an elevator and they they take it and um and then there's also like a shootout at the end when the police are chasing Pierre Clemente and like a scene in a bar where they're talking to some toughs about, you know, their their deal and they want too high of a cut and the guy's pulling a knife. That stuff is so alien <laughs> to Boonwell's movies. <laughs> yeah, that is feels, not what he's interesting. It feels really forced. Just like second time through, it's just like, I, I, all I can think is it's like, I don't, I don't, I know why it's here. But I don't know why it's here. At the same it's time. 
Yeah, it's not very good. What I was going to say is Boonwell is interested in the criminality inside regular people. That's his interest. He's interested in the perverted criminal desires lurking inside of regular people. He's interested in Severine in this movie. He's he's interested in, uh, you know, Archibaldo de la Cruz, who imagines many different ways to murder his wife, or Elle, this strange passion about the guy who's insanely jealous uh, of his young bride. He's He's interested in the perverted criminal inside regular people and the fantasy life of regular people. So when criminals are in his movies, he he clearly just doesn't care about those characters or have any use for them. Part of the reason that it feels a little forced is he's taken a, a novel by Joseph Cashel, which is a really trash boat novel. Uh, and that novel is very much like peek at the inner workings of a real brothel, you know, uh, mm -hmm. kind of attitude. And it's very, that book is very in love with like low level hoods and, uh, you know, scumbag criminals and sort of the titillation of the real life of whores, you know, is what that book is like. And that's a lot of stuff, that overarching plot of it um, is inherited from the book. Uh, that that's a lot of what the book is about um, as far as, you know, it follows the book fairly closely, I'd say. Uh, it's been a, a long fucking time since I've read the book. Uh, but it's, you know, that's that's where the, all that stuff comes from. And the rest of the movie, Boonwell's interests are all grafted on top of it. I should say the story of it follows the book very closely. There's so much stuff that's purely Boonwell's invention. Basically, all of, of Severine's fantasy life is invented by Boonwell. And her fantasy space is entirely invented by him. Because that and his screenwriter, co-screenwriter Jean-Claude Carrière, which we haven't mentioned yet, my favorite screenwriter of all time, uh, probably just slightly a hair ahead of Shinobu Hashimoto, but definitely up there for, for greatest screenwriter of all time. And I think that that's what their interests are and how this movie, the only thing pulling it back and making it a Boonwell movie is that stuff. But I also find, you know, part of the reason this movie, and I liked it, I always like mm -hmm. it just fine when I watch it. I always like it just fine. I don't think it's bad or anything. Um, a lot of the stuff in this movie that's supposedly like... Uh, titillating or shocking or maybe of interest to people is very old hat at this point. I don't think there's virtually anything shocking in this movie anymore. I think that everybody knows about sadomasochism now. I think everybody knows about the existence of brothels. You know, I think that hmm. that the idea that there's this secret hidden world that the curtain's being pulled back on by this film, you know, that curtain has been pulled back for 40 fucking years, you know, like, I don't think anybody's, I don't think that there's anything in this movie that would be shocking to regular people anymore. Some of her fantasies are interesting and I, and I like them and they hit a little harder this time than in, they have in the past. But, you know, I think that, I, I think that they're burdened with a not great book for this. And I do say burdened. They, um, they made this movie, Boonwell and Carrière, because their normal producer in France, uh, Serge mm -hmm. Silberman, had had gone bankrupt. He produced all of the French Boonwells. He also produced Ran and uh, Max Mon Amour, the uh, Oshima movie. 
Uh, he's oh, the, great, the, the great. Ape one. Yeah, and Akira Kurosawa was Ran. He also produced, and he's uh, he's a he's a fantastic producer, and he worked with Boonwell. They sort of had a um, uh, a pause in their relationship with Silberman, and the um, Hakim brothers owned this book and came to, I think. I don't want to say they came to Boonwell and Carrier and had them um, adapt the book and and make the book into a movie. And Carrier actually talks about that the Hakeem brothers were very classic producers and that they had no idea who Boonwell was. He was just a name who had won mm. some awards at Cannes Film Festival and other festivals and just hired him to do a classy adaptation of this book that they owned. And the book had been floating around for years. Lots of people had been, people had been trying to get it made. It's the kind of, of subject matter that's very attractive to, um, to producers, you know, like classy smut, especially in that era, uh, was very, was very attractive per, to producers. And um, in fact, Carrier, all of his, all of his cohorts and, uh, people in his life were like, don't make, don't take the job, don't do that book. <laughs> but he went, mm. but Boonwell convinced him to do it. And I think that, I think that that's all this, this movie's working against all of that baggage in a way that Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie uh, or um, Obscure Object of Desire don't have any baggage to work against. You know, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie is an original script that Obscure Object of Desire is a uh, novel Boonwell had been interested in for a very long time. So it's this book is just sort of saddled with bad producers. He didn't want um, Catherine Deneuve for the lead role. She was already signed on to do it when Boonwell was brought on and he and her apparently didn't get along and it was a unhappy working relationship for both of them um it's Hmm. just this this movie is as close to a a for hire job as boonwell gets in his french era and it, it feels that way to me i think you can again put it back to it makes more sense when you set it in the mexican era where he's doing sort of more for higher regular melodrama type work and adding boonwellian touches and ideas to a lot of them until nazarene in which the mexican films become interesting after nazarene they become true boonwell movies uh but again his 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 filmography does not divide up into neat little categories in that way Nazarene is sort of the resurrection of his career. This movie that we're talking about is 1967. Nazarene is in 1959. And that's the one that pulls him out of uh, the sort of stasis he's in, the the obscurity, more or less, that he's working in in Mexico. He's sort of a forgotten filmmaker at that point. And Nazarene is uh, is the film that... um, that uh, uh, win that wins some awards and and you know gets his reputation back on track. Apparently, John Huston loved it, mm-hmm. and oh, wow. and yeah, and like you know to hear Boonwell tell it, he's like John Huston saved my life, more or less. That 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 just his love of that film just got me everything back on track for me. And then after that, he makes Verdiana, which is the one we discussed. That was the, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's able to go back to Spain. He's able to leave Mexico and go back to Spain and um, gets buried. Then he get back in Mexico. Now he's working with Gustavo Alatriste, who sort of fancies himself. He wants, Gustavo Alatriste wants to be 
like a European style art auteur um, producer, right? That's what he has designs on. Mm -hmm. He wants to, he's trying to work with filmmakers like Fellini and Orson Welles and people like that is who he's trying to make movie with. And that's who Boonwell connects with at that point. They make Viridiana. The next year they make Exterminating Angel. Um, and then I think that they do Simon of the Desert the same year as Exterminating Angel. And that's after those, he's, he's back on track. Those movies are all well-regarded enough that he's able to go to France. And in 64, he makes his first movie with Serge Silverman, which is Diary of a Chambermaid. And one note about Diary of a Chambermaid mm -hmm. that I always like to mention, it's virtually a remake of Viridiana. These movies are so incredibly similar in a lot of ways. And I always feel like uh, at that point, it's unclear to... Uh, to to boon well what's going to happen with viridiana that it gets suppressed for a number of years and that he's really mm. um not sure what's going to go on with it it doesn't get released in spain until 77 after franco dies you know so yeah. uh, i think that diary of a chambermaid is a little bit of him saying oh that was a really good one why don't mm. i do that again uh, Chambermaid is also the first one he does with uh, Jean-Claude Carrière, who's the screenwriter that'll really come to define mm -hmm. his late work. And that is all segue into Belle de Jour in 67 is the next one he makes. But you can see with where he's at in his career, why he does a kind of for higher work. He's not grand old man Boonwell at that point. He's Boonwell who just got out of Mexico again and is becoming a Nash international figure again, you know, but he can't mm -hmm. really turn afford to turn down work. I don't think, I don't think he has the, the opportunity to act like he's one of the most important filmmakers in the world. I think that, that he's a very much a working filmmaker at that. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like what my opinion on this movie outside of, I like it, but, uh, and, and that's kind of it. Uh, okay, so like uh, so Catherine Deneuve, overall, mm -hmm. I, I I always like her and stuff, but like she, 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 for me, she's not like a big draw. Like her, like her sister, whose name I can never remember the right way to say it. Francois Doliac. Yes, like I like her as an actress a little bit more because uh, what movie was it? It was um the Polanski movie she did was a thing that really like uh, has really stuck with me what and repulsion it, the Deneuve did or that Dorliac uh, did Dorliac uh, oh. the one with um, Lionel Stander in like the really weird jazz soundtrack uh, what cul-de-sac yes yeah that's okay <laughs> they that both, the I first... never thought about how they both did uh, Polanski movies Huh. I yeah, cul-de-sac is not one I've revisited. I watched cul-de-sac when I was, I guess, in college. John Cribbs and I rented it from Rick's <laughs> Piermont Video, bootleg with a blue slip cover on the VHS. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, I think I think it's the first Polanski I ever saw, and no, no, I saw Macbeth when I was uh, in high school. My teacher yeah. kept saying this movie's real shitty, but we have to watch it for the for a class. And that's kind of my only memory of it. <laughs> oh, really? His version of Macbeth is great. I mean, it's no well, Throne of Blood, but it's it's up yeah. there. Yeah, I just remember, like, this was an all-boys Catholic school. Uh, yeah. 
I'm in Delaware. It's not hard to figure out what I'm talking about. And uh, most of the guys were like, <laughs> ew, old old lady boobs are gross at that one part. And it was, even then, yeah. I was like, I don't know. There's sword fights. That, like, I'm interested in that stuff. <laughs> well, this doesn't yeah. bother me that much. Anyway. Um, it's a fairly brutal movie. It's I believe it's the one he made right after uh, the Manson murders. Now, now I haven't done all my research on everything. Uh, yeah, I think it is, which kind of ties 71, into like... yes. Well, it's it has, to me, it always, you can always feel the, like, um, ugliness of it uh, in in that movie. That that movie feels like exercising the the grossness of what's happened, you know? Yeah. The ugliness of it. But uh, yeah, Pastor Catherine. And, I'm, I'm, like, and of course, I'm right. It is the one right after the Manson murders. <laughs> but uh, like just overall, like Catherine of, I I always like, but she's not someone like I'll have to see it movie. And here yeah. she seems kind of out of place because I'm used to her in like the Shock to Me movies, where she's yeah. wait to me. Yes, I said the right one. The, yeah. The, there's so many French names that overlap. I'm always like. Wait, did I say the right Jacques this time? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I I think she doesn't become a great actress. I love her now, but I don't think she becomes a great actress until like the 80s. The first really good performance I can think of from her is probably Last Metro. It's probably the Truffaut movie from 1980. 1980. Um, and then, you know... And then in the late 90s, I think that she actually sort of comes into her own finally. And you have stuff like when she's she's doing, you know, the the Tachin movies like, you know, Thieves and Changing Times or she's doing Pola X with Leos Koresh. And then obviously um, Kings and Queen and uh, Christmas Tale, the Desplechen. I think those are mm-hmm. the two best roles she ever did. Mm-hmm. Those two roles. Um, and I think this era, she is, she's famous in this era for being sort of like a glassy cipher in her performances. And I think that's mainly because of Repulsion and, um, Belle de Jour, uh, Repulsion 65, Belle de Jour 67. And she gives the same kind of glassy eyed, dazed performance in it, or she's doing Young Girls of Rochefort, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, like cutesy stuff that are you know that are just cutesy movie star roles those are great you know but i certainly don't think of it as amazing performances and then there's stuff like she's bad in mississippi mermaid and she's you know hold on one sec let me let these uh fire trucks pass you'll you'll cut this okay and i do and i think that there's movies like you know that i like that i like her in like donkey skin where she's not doing much of anything um but it this actually all i think is a good time to talk about um tristana which is the other movie she made with boone well in 1970 that's the the franco nero one that is the franco nero one he is indeed the worst thing about it he indeed (laughs) keeps it from being one of boone well's best films because he's so bad in it um (laughs) and i I like franco nero in action movies but him serious is is always a little like i don't i don't don't know if i buy it (laughs) He's he's also too he's he's too much of a movie star. He's like too pretty and too unreal 
for Boonwell's world. Boonwell loves mm-hmm. casting um, people like uh, Michelle Piccoli, uh, who's the sleazy friend in Belle du Jour. That's the kind of male lead he likes, or Fernando Rey, who are not sort of movie star gorgeous looking guys. Um, he casts more real looking people a lot of the time. Uh, maybe not real, but but not Franco Nero types. Like Franco Nero is somebody who can only exist in movies. I know he was a real guy, but he only yeah. makes sense in movies to look at him. Um, that movie's interesting. I think she gives a much, much better performance in Tristana. I think Tristana is a much, much better film than Belle du Jour. Belle du Jour is probably um, like if there's a, a tier between the handful, the four or five movies Boonwell has that I don't think are any good whatsoever, you know, mm-hmm. maybe like Susanna and The Brute, um, it's above that tier. You know, it's okay. it's above that tier, but it's the last one in the tier above the not good ones to me. I think it's down at the very, it's good. Belle du Jour is definitely good. It definitely belongs in the tier of good movies, but it's not, not that good. Whereas Tristana, I think, sort of avoids the top 10 just narrowly. And it's mainly because of Franco Nero that I think it avoids being in the in the top 10. And Tristana, it's based on a Galdos novel, uh, Boonwell, liked uh, adapting Galdos. He, um, Galdos, I, uh, I don't think of as being a great writer. Uh, I'm not super familiar with his work. I more, that's my understanding of his reputation is that he's not thought of as a great writer, but Boonwell got great stuff out of his, his movies. I think that kind of uh, almost social realist stuff that Galdos mm-hmm. did is better for him than the sleazy, uh, quote unquote, realness of something like Belle du Jour and, and Kessel's novel. Uh, I think that, I think it's funny that Boonwell mm-hmm. is more at home taking books that are not overtly perverted and mm-hmm. doing Boonwell out of them than taking material that's overtly perverted and making mm-hmm. Boonwell out of it. Yeah. Uh, Diary of a Chambermaid, though, is certainly plenty perverted and nuts and gross. <laughs> um, so maybe yeah. maybe that's a false theory. Maybe that's a false theory I have there. Could be. But, um, but, yeah, but, but uh, I think it's I mean, an interesting uh, comparison. Yeah, sorry, yeah, but go also, on. Um, uh, Franco Nero has that like Jean Paul Bamondo quality where it's like he always comes off as dumb even when he's not supposed to be dumb, like <laughs> there's like a dumbness yeah. to him. <laughs> I don't think I do. Yeah. I don't think Belmondo is being dumb. I think of Belmondo being like uh, a pally guy. Like Belmondo's like a proto bro mm. in a lot of ways. I don't think mm. Boonwell is being dumb. Franco, Franco Nero strikes me as you're right, as having a certain kind of like actor's stupidity that because you look smart you get treated as smart but then when he opens his mouth and sort of does things you're like oh wait this is just a guy who looks the part this is the he's the william henry harrison of actors is what i'm good that's a deep cut historical reference for all you presidential loves out there all you presidential heads will appreciate the william henry harrison reference um and uh and frank ornero like i think it's kind of hilarious he's uh, he's been with um, Vanessa Redgrave for off and on for so long. It's like she yeah. actually is intelligent and <laughs> like a smart person, and he's just like a hot, dumb guy. I think that that's how you know she's a smart person. 
is that yeah. she's with the hot dumb guy is <laughs> she's she's she did the right move that's the that's the thing you got to do hmm. um yeah but tristana's great tristana's fantastic i would i would sort of again be an awful hard on belle du jour but watch tristana instead that was that was the one that um hitchcock loved hitchcock loved tristana and when he met Boonwell, that's like all he wanted to talk about was Tristana. Yeah, and going back to I guess like Belle de Jour and like uh, Boonwell overall, like uh, Michelle Piccoli is how, like, like when I think of him, I always think of Boonwell because like yeah. they are like it's a perfect pair. And yeah, and like he, whenever he's not playing like a sleazy guy or like basically him and like Young Girls of Rochefort is like one of the weak points for me because he's playing like a timid lovelorn dude and it's like i i just don't really buy it from him like he needs to be more like aggressive and active and like not that not that he should he should replace gene kelly in it but like he should have had a more act like that's like the one big weak point in that movie for me just i don't really buy him being timid and uh and passive like that yeah i love i mean i love that movie that movie is a movie that I feel like has obvious problems to it, but they're so beside the point to me. Like that movie is it's its aims are so light and lovable that you don't need to fix it. You know, it's not it's yeah. not what it's trying to do. Not that it's an easy thing to accomplish. It's just it's its goal is to be charming. And that movie is perfectly charming. But you're right. Piccoli is such a strange movie star it is so strange that he ever got to be a movie star uh contempt that's other big one for coley where i'm like this feels out of place because he he's yeah. not like him as a submissive uh passive person just doesn't work like i think the contempt would have been better with jean-louis trench and how you trent say and yeah yeah trench and yon because uh the, the height difference between Jean-Louis and Jack Palance is more so Jack Palance would seem more like a like a sexual monster yeah uh, basically and and Jean-Louis can pull off that intellectual like uh low-key like intellectual like type character uh, yeah for sure and it has a kind of like coldness and analyticness to it that's not incompatible with his movie stardom Piccoli's like I I struggle to think of any starring role in a movie that he's good for he's a character actor who somehow became a movie (laughs) star he's definitely in that that brian dennehy vein of character actor and movie star and then you go like well what do you do with him there's a few (laughs) roles lead roles that he'd be dynamite in but you know it's it's sort of hard to figure out or um or forrest whitaker that's another like character actor who became a movie star and you're like what's the perfect forrest whitaker role and it's like well it's not one of the romantic leads in Young Girls of Rochefort, <laughs> I don't think. It's obviously the, the detective in Bloodsport. <laughs> I, I, or the uh, the uh, the detective on uh, American Dad. I think that's perfect use of Forrest <laughs> Whitaker. And like like Bacoli is great, and um, I've been doing French for oh, for a year and a half on Duolingo, and still don't feel comfortable saying it out loud. But the the four-hour painter one, Jacques Rivette one. La Belle Noiseuse. Yes, like he's the, beauti- good, uh, the beautiful nuisance. <laughs> yeah, that's good use of him. That's great use of him, actually. Yeah, he's he, old, cranky, kind of a pervert. 
obviously, and it's like, yeah, th- this is perfect. This is how you use him. <laughs> yeah, he's also... That movie is an interesting, almost critique. I feel like it has too much sympathy of that era of art. Like, what happens in art cinema and art in the and with the sevo- sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s is you have a lot of these gross old dudes being like, now we will make great art. First, all of the ladies take off their clothes. <laughs> You know, like that's mm-hmm. there's a very kind of European gross louche lecher dude that Piccoli's great casting as and Boonwell uses him great in that role. And that's the role he's playing in Belle de Jour. Um that that's the perfect use for him. That's not really the lead in a fucking movie too often. Uh of the that kind of like, oh you ladies, it is art. Jodorowsky types. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that is, yeah. he is that guy. I don't like Jodorowsky at all. I feel like he's such an obvious fraud to me. I just think he's like mm. the king of full of shit. He's a goddamn trained mime. Fuck him. Anyway, <laughs> but he's definitely the kind of guy who's like, he's uh, and then we, uh, and then we, bullshit. and then we, and then we see the boobies in the bush <laughs> and, uh, oh, you don't want to do, I'll take my pants off too. And it's like, God damn, this is everybody's job, man. Like, stop being... <laughs> Gross. Yeah, he's a, he's a bullshit shaman. Like it's half interesting, half like shut the fuck up already. Yes, he's a total bullshit shaman. And when I can get a little distance and be like, oh, that's interesting. It's interesting with distance when it if when I'm confronted with true believers, I'm like, you know, you're being sold snake oil, right? You know, <laughs> you're you know, you're being sold a load of shit. Like this this shaman isn't going to be able to pull out your tumors with psychic surgery. You're gonna die of cancer. You know, like yeah. that's that's my reaction to those kind of uh shamanistic bullshit stuff is like this magical ritual does nothing. You know that, right? Like it's a cool <laughs> ritual to watch, but it's not going to do a goddamn thing. So and and Piccoli, uh, Piccoli would have been an interesting guy to cast in a uh, in a, a Jodorowsky movie. Although he, you know, who the person from Belle de Jour that would have been at home in a Jodorowsky movie is Pierre Clemente. He's a oh, perfect. Yeah. He's a perfect uh, Jodorowsky actor. I wonder yeah, if they could... did anything together. It's possible, but uh, I think the reason I, I didn't realize uh, it was him in Pigsty was that. Uh, in Pixai, he barely talks, and here he talks, and that might be the difference. Because in Pixai, he just has to be like, I guess, a type of Jesus figure or anti-Jesus yeah. figure. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out piece that movie together. Uh, I, I, I love it, but it's still, but it's Pasolini. So for me, it's like I'll never fully get it, but like I know I, this like this shit is for me. Yeah, yeah. I don't know Pasolini is a filmmaker that when I was like teenage and college age meant a lot to me. And I just sort of grew out of them. Like those movies I look back and I just, I just philosophically, I don't get anything out of them anymore. Although Pigsty is the most interesting one. What's his line? Clemente has the great line. The, uh, you know, Oh, I, I killed, killed my father. My... Yeah. I ate human flesh and I quiver with joy. Yeah. That's, that's the line right there. That's the whole movie. Um, yeah, uh... Yeah, uh, I I forgot to mention in the episode when we recorded it a couple of days ago. Uh, apparently, uh, I'm sorry, Boonwell, Pasolini wanted um, Jacques Tati to play the Hitler dad in a wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> this is funny because Pasolini isn't full of shit. 
That's it's funny that like Pasolini isn't a bullshit shaman. I think Pasolini has really strong, clear, well thought out, interesting ideas. Uh, they're just I don't agree with him on much anymore. But every time I hear another thing about Pasolini, I'm like, that's great. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Shock Tati. There's yeah. another famous filmmaker I don't connect with at all. I don't I don't get anything out of Tati's. Uh, but oh. Belle du Jour. Uh, this is a good movie. Yeah, this, this, this is a good movie. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to badmouth it too much. I feel like I've been going very hard on it for some reason. And I, I think I only mean that in a corrective way in that to a lot of people, this is the towering jewel of his career. This is the rules of the game, Citizen Kane of Boonwell's career, I think to a lot of people, uh, when it should obviously be discreet charm. I think that this this one stands out. It was a big hit. It got the re-release, the Miramax re-release. Uh, it was it was a big, important movie, and I think that uh, I I might be overcorrecting a little bit to say that Meh, it's not his best. There's plenty of interesting and and likable stuff in it. I'll tell you the one thing that always mm-hmm. bothered me in this movie, just as I was like, well, let's talk a little bit about what's interesting and what we like about it for it. Um, but and that was like one more thing that bothers me. Something that I, I feel like is so un-Boonwellian in this film is that when the husband, who's the surgeon, Pierre Sorel, mm-hmm. goes out and they're leaving the hospital and he sees the wheelchair and is like, oh, I just had the strangest feeling looking at that, right? And then later on in the movie, he ends up in a wheelchair at the end of the mm-hmm. film. I always felt like that's such dumb pseudo-mystical foreshadowing. Like, Boonwell never does that kind of, like, uh, this means something mystical foreshadowing like that. And I hate that it's in this movie. Like, for a long time, if you asked me what was Belle de Jour about, I'd be like, oh, that stupid wheelchair is what (laughs) Belle de Jour is about. Um, But I don't feel that way anymore. This time watching it, the final scene where... um, All right. Um, so I remember the pairing. The first one was it was two or three things I know about her, a movie I barely remember watching that I don't really care for. So wait, uh, we're doing the pairings? Yeah, I just remember that was okay. a pairing, and uh, I, I, oh wait, I, are you saying the pairing from the other one we did in '67 that I picked one of them? I know this You're, is the the like the episode pairing that was supposed okay. to go back to back with it. That uh, yeah. I totally that was forgot. one of my picks. That was one of my picks to pair with it uh, because it's about um, it's about the same thing. It's about the the uh, the bourgeois, the rich lady who becomes yeah. a prostitute. It's the same thing. It's sixty seven. Oh, now I got to pick another one. Now I got to pick something else. Yeah. So um, it's the it's the one Godard I really don't like. The rest are kind of like it's important. I get it, but. No, it sucks. It's one of his yeah. first terrible ones. It's when he becomes he becomes bad in that era. The the scene, the literal scene where Godard becomes leaves Golden Era Godard is in Masculine Feminine where he starts grilling the beauty pageant contestant about Vietnam, right? Mm-hmm. And it's such, he's being such a dickhead. He's being so condescending. He's being so cruel to this young woman. And, and it's fake smart. Like, oh, you're just a beauty pageant contestant. You don't care about Vietnam. It's like, shut the fuck up, dude. She's like 19. You know, like, get, <laughs> yeah. it, like, just 
go take your shots at somebody else. That's the exact scene that it becomes bad. That's 66. Then he makes Made in USA, which is the um, Westlake Parker adaptation. Mm-hmm. And he just makes that movie because he's getting divorced with Anna Karina and he's worried about what's going to mm-hmm. happen to her and gives her one more payday for it. Then two or three things I know about her and La Chinoise are 67. Mm-hmm. And that's New Era, Boon, uh, New Era Godard that sucks. It's the New Era Godard that mm-hmm. sucks. It's post-masculine feminine. And Made in USA sucks too. Um, but it's the first one where he's left the good movies mm-hmm. that we all like behind and goes into the rest of his career, which are these pretentious, not that interesting, not that intelligent, not that creative essay films and sort of uh, ruminative movies where it's basically, you know, look, what I always say is you have like a, a goodbye to language, right? Mm-hmm. Which people love. It's the 3D one. And you watch it and you show that movie to a regular person and it's an incredibly unlikable old man fucking around with his dog in the backyard. <laughs> that's what that yeah. movie is. And um, and that's when he enters the new era. His last great movie is Weekend, which is also 67. That'll be my pairing, is Weekend, to contrast okay. with uh, two or three things I know about her, is also 67. Weekend's one of my favorite movies of all time. And that's like the supernova. Like Weekend blows up and then there's no more Godard. He just doesn't exist after that. If you ask me, um, even the one he did with Carrier is is not that is not that uh, phenomenal of a movie. Um, although it's it, although it's okay. What is that? What is the name of that movie? I can't think of the name of that movie. Um, Every Man for Himself. No, it's Every Man for Himself is the name of that movie, and I know why I can't remember because it's just a uh, uh, not that great of a title. He also. Um, I think that Carrier worked on another movie with him, but I don't think he's, I don't mm. think he's credited as a screenwriter. I don't know off the top of my head. Sorry to step all over your pairing. It's fine. Yeah. Like uh, the only late uh, uh, Godard I'm interested kind of watching is the King Lear. Cause it, it sounds so. It sucks. <laughs> it yeah, was but... done on a cock. <laughs> it was done on a cocktail napkin. He at can, he wrote out the contract with the uh, with the Canon Group on a cocktail napkin. Or uh, yeah, it's Canon Group that did it, right? Yeah, it's it's the Golden Globus. It's Golden Globus. <laughs> with yeah. uh, Molly, Sh- not Molly Shannon, uh, Breakfast Club. With yeah, Molly Ringwald, Ringwald and and Woody <laughs> Allen and yeah, yeah. and uh, the guy from Rocky, the old man. Yeah. But I don't know which one if it was Golan or Globus, but apparently they they wrote the deal on a cocktail napkin. It's uh, it's it's terrible. It's not worth watching. I will tell you right now, it is not okay. worth watching. It is on YouTube, so I've been curious for a while. Um, every uh, man uh, for uh, himself, passion, and uh, detective are the three from the '80s that are worth watching once. Hail Mary has has some okay stuff in it. I, they're just like they're just like a shadow of his real movies, though. They're like not as interesting versions of Pere Lafou and Woman is a Woman. That's just, they're just not as good. Okay, for me, um, I, uh, I'm going to say, oh, we did an episode on it, but Deadly Sweet, the Tinto Brass movie, one of his uh, oh, yeah? first movies. It's a whole lot of fun. It's Tinto Brass doing Breathless and kind of making fun of Godard. Yeah. Uh, also kind of praising Godard at the same time. It's... It's kind of a, an odd mix. I can't tell if it's tr- if it's pro, like 
what was intent is exactly to make fun of it or to like uh praise it because it's kind of a mix of the both yeah i've never seen it i like tento brass i i I like his movies for what they are that's talk about like pretentious sleazy european art auteurs (laughs) i think uh pornographers pretending to be artists i think that that's a great example but i like that much more than the artists who are are pretending they have no interest in in uh, their own desires yeah. uh that that pretend like a lot of what they're doing isn't about like what gives them a boner <laughs> and um i had some other pairings but i'd rather mention some african novels that uh i haven't read yet but they've been on a list of i i'll get to them at some point uh, Ajay, uh, Ajay in his uh, Inherited Poverty by Amos, Amos Tutuola. Mm-hmm. I've read, I think, two Tutuola books already, and his style is like writing, basically like a, like a folk tale. Let's, like or or oral tradition folk tale is kind of his writing style. And when he he was the first African uh, novelist to get published internationally. Yeah. And uh, Chinua Achebe and um, uh, Equency and um, <clears throat> some other ones at the time did not like his style because they thought his style would uh, continue the stereotypes about Africa. Yeah. Which I can understand, but if you actually read the books, they're they're, they're always interesting. It's cl- it's clear comes from a place of understanding like the the folk tale structure and the, and the mythology structure. That kind of stuff also always ages very well when I feel like when things are like I think of with like cruising the Friedkin mm-hmm. movie there was the real um, pushback from the gay community at the time because it's like we are this is we are trying to create positive imagery of persecuted mm-hmm. minority group with this we can't have the like perverted dangerous version of that out there but when you watch that movie and i've certainly heard many of many of my uh queer and gay friends talk about it captures an era and a place in a way that almost no other movie does that it ends up being this really interesting document of a time and a mindset uh, because it's a great movie and it's a really interesting movie that doesn't pull its punches and doesn't worry about uh portraying things in an aspirational positivist way that it's not a uh document that's Mm. intended to be a social document uh advancing ideas and an agenda that it's intended to be an artwork it ages really well so i'd be interested if these books have the same thing going for them um i would think so but uh i'm not an expert on literature or writing so what do i know yeah uh Okay, and going off the uh, Chebe, um, uh, no, a man of the people came out. Uh, oh, okay, with sixty-six, but close enough. It's one I have that I haven't gotten to yet, but it's a Chebe. I will get to it. Uh, I I love and respect his work, but some of his personal life stuff, uh, you know, not great. But you can't expect all ours to be great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm specifically specifically referring to he stopped talking to um, Florida Wapa, like for the last ten years of her life and or so, and uh, no one really knows why. Uh, I can't find any reason why they stopped talking. He's the reason she got published internationally in the first place. They were friends, and then at some point he just cut contact with her, and just kind of mm-hmm. this. 
I don't know, like, there's some other kind of fishy stuff like that. It's like, okay, maybe you got full of yourself or something. I don't know. But. That happens to the best of us. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Loco Town and Other Stories by Cyprian de Quincy. That's another one I have that I haven't gotten to yet, but it's a Quincy. I'll probably like it. He wasn't the best writer of the group. Uh, he's, uh, I guess now people would say he's too sexist, which... I, I I can see that that complaint, but you also have to understand like he's kind of one of the first African novel novelists to get published internationally, so he's kind of has a a big part in making sure you know African literature got into the world. But yeah, and his books are usually very short, and uh, if you have trouble like focusing on reading like long books, these books are great because like you'll be done pretty quickly. Excellent. All right, and this will come out after. Wait, uh, am, I, am I doing my picks? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the so I picked weekend. We talked about Godard. Uh, since you switched one to '66, I'm mm -hmm. going to switch and do a film from '66. I'm That's picking fine. Seijin Suzuki's Carmen from Kawachi. Uh, which is a movie about, it pairs with Belle du Jour because it's about a, a regular woman who becomes a bar hostess and then a prostitute and then a pornographic actress. Uh, and it's um, it's essentially, you know, it's based loosely on the opera Carmen. That's why it's Carmen from Kawachi. Uh, it stars um, Yumiko Nagawa, who is the lead in Gate of Flesh and Story of a Prostitute, which are two of Suzuki's much more heralded movies. Carmen from Kawachi is just as good as those movies. I actually prefer it uh, a little bit, although it it's um, it's a little more wicked and weird than those movies, a little more satirical. It's basically a, uh, you know, Branded to Kill is the movie that got Suzuki blacklisted and fired from Nakatsu. I think Carmen from Kawachi is the movie that really, like, Branded to Kill was the final straw. Carmen from Kawachi is a uh, essentially a parody of what Nikatsu is going to become, which is the, the pinky violence softcore pornography studio. And Suzuki is attacking those kind of filmmakers and directors uh, uh, with uh, this movie. was the pinky violence one. Uh, Nikatsu becomes, does does uh, pinky do? violence as well yeah they become couple. they become they become a softcore studio I'm, I'm not sure if it's technically pinky violence but they they uh, definitely become a softcore wait, studio no, i think they might have done the stray cat rock movies that i think about it yeah i, I mean I they make remember. they they make you know they make they make pinku films for yeah. there's there's no there's no question yeah. i guess what is the what is the, what is the uh My the phrase is, for it? Oh. roman porno that's yes. that's the word they use for it. So maybe not pinky violent. Maybe there's some yeah. very big distinction there. It, but they make violent S and M based uh, yeah. softcore movies. And this movie's a parody, uh, are certainly a critique and satire of Nakatsu heading that way. And it's fantastic. It's great. You should seek it out if you haven't yeah. seen it. Um, and then my final pick is. Uh, Peter Brooks' film from 67, based on his play, The Persecution and Assassination of Jean-Paul Marat, as performed by the inmates of the Asylum Charenton under the direction of Marquis de Sade, which is normally called Marat Sade. And it's about a play being put on in the, the Charenton Sane Asylum, and the play is being directed 
by Marquis de Sade. And the play is about when Jean-Paul Marat was assassinated by an impoverished noblewoman. Uh, Jean-Paul Marat was like a, um, a, a uh, uh, democratic revolutionary man of the people type who was uh, stabbed while in the bathtub by this woman. He took a meeting with this woman when he was in the bathtub uh, mm. in which she was pretending uh, like she had a list of people uh, who needed to go to the guillotine. And he was like, great. They had a short conversation. And then after he said, yeah, I'll make sure that these people uh, get their heads taken off. She stabbed him to death in the bathtub. And this movie which is based on the play uh it stars uh glenda jackson and um and patrick mcgee and ian richardson uh is um uh, based on based on the um based on the play and it's uh you know it's a big ideas thing it's a it's a high concept thing um it's uh, not maybe not experimental theater, but kind of the new theater and the aggressive theater kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's a movie that was a really big fucking deal in its day and a play that was a really big fucking deal that you don't hear mentioned anymore in the cinema world. It's one of those weirdly lost things that was like, like really fucking mattered. Like it was, it was a really big deal. Um, you know, one of those four stars out of four type of movies that mm -hmm. critics were just in unison about and uh, provoked a lot of discussion and all that. And it's kind of disappeared from the cultural consciousness. I mm -hmm. think because it, uh, it is a very theatrical and it's full of acting, uh, you know, a very mm -hmm. specific type of actorly acting and theatrically written theater theater writing but it's cool it's neat and the reason i pair it with this is that boonwell was a was a big big fan of desaad's writings he was a uh, very into desaad and uh i think that the uh you know certainly some of the sadomasochistic ideas from belle de jour um you can see reflected in this film as well uh or certainly uh taken to task and mm. critiqued and interacted with by with this film and also the politics that's something that mm. we didn't talk much about with Boonwell he um steers clear of politics he touches on incredibly political subject matter but he himself his politics are um he's apolitical in a conscious way in that he's not a forger of opinions he's not a forcer of ideas uh, that he wants his films to be ironic. He wants his films to be mysterious. He wants his films to be uninterpretable and, and open to uh, mystery. Um, not mysticism, but mystery. And so politics, which is a very reductive way of seeing the world and forces things down and oversimplifies things he avoids a lot and this play Murat Saad is very political and is very much about both the politics of the time and the history of democratic politics and the way it relates to the sexual revolution and the way it relates to the social mores happening in the 60s as well it's very much in that tradition of um uh, King of Hearts or One Flew Over the Cuckoo's mm. Nest of like, who are the crazy people? 
are the ins- are the inmates the insane ones <laughs> or is it the people outside of the insane that are really crazy you know it's got that's the very 60s idea it definitely belongs to that and i think that you know if you watch them back to back you'll go wow Belle du Jour is a much, much better movie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Is that it for you? That's it. That's all I got. Unless you need anything else. Those were my three. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I got, I got nothing else. There's massacre gun, the Joshua Shida movie that I honestly don't remember much of, but I reviewed it for my blog, Jailhouse 701 Japanese cult cinema. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, two years ago, three years ago, I can't remember yeah. at this point. I liked it, but I just kind of remember the end, like the last thirty minutes, and that's most of it. That's all I remember, kind of. So, I have a review of it. So, I don't know if you want to see my opinion <laughs> from forty years ago. Go ahead and read it. Read the review. Sounds good. Yeah, cool. So well, will... thanks for having me on here oh, you're and welcome. talking some Boone Well. Yeah, you'll be back for a episode on on the Milky Way uh, before Great. the end of this season, and I'm um, saving the other Boonwell for next season. I'll tell you when we're done recording why. Cool. And um, uh, this will probably come out in April, so uh, or May. I'm not sure which one yet. So what what's coming out, uh, Pink Smoke wise, by that point? Uh new episodes of the podcast i could hold on i could look up and see what we're gonna be i don't want to spoil anything for anybody let me uh well actually actually because this will be out at the same time i'll be able to seem like a like a fortune teller if i go if i say i don't know i don't have this done right i can't say i can't say no i can't say i don't know what we'll be doing then i have no idea (laughs) read check the website Listen to the podcast. Uh, I'm sure it'll be great. I know that we got coming up, we got Kessler and a bunch of episodes coming up that have either happened or will be happening shortly. We got a great Mother's Day episode coming up in May. Uh, it'll be good. We got good stuff. Uh, Mother's Day is one of my favorite days of the year because I always post the picture from the X-Files episode. And every year... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> my one friend Megan who's been in her show Megan Sunday gets upset <laughs> well you know it's a tradition yeah I have to do it like like I start the year with an ocean movie every single year the last four years <laughs> I, I just have to do it at this point it's good it's a good thing to do yeah alright so um, this will come out after the Breathless remake episode which spoiler alert me Joel LB and Andrew from uh, Grumpire uh, all prefer that over the original. So, uh, yeah, I, I do too. I the, ori- oh. the original doesn't hold up. Oh, okay. 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 We're, we're not alone. I- the show can be found on Twitter at Piano Player Pod. Our email is still highlowpod at gmail.com. You can find a show on Spotify, Podbean, and at various other places where you can find podcasts. Our intro music is by Vivian Fop, and our cover art is by Sarah Roberts. You can find her art, sarahkathleenroberts.com. And thank you for listening.